have a question that's keeping you up at night, we'll submit your question and maybe you can be featured on the show just like our five listeners today. Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another Curbside Consult. I get super excited every month when I get to do one of these shows that kind of breaks up the interview format because I get to answer your questions. This is the stuff that you guys, after hearing the show and research and reading, still have questions on. And when you call them in, I love answering these things. There's so many great questions. And so if you've got a question, go to financialresidency.com slash podcast and click on the got a question, send it in. And record your question, and hopefully I can get to it on the show, just like the five listener questions that I'm answering today for everyone. If it's something a little more complex, or if you're looking to work with an expert, I'm still taking clients on at my fee-only financial planning firm, Physician Wealth Services. Flat fee only, no AUM, and I only work with physicians and their families all across the country. So if you're interested in getting together, I'd love to meet with you at physicianwealthservices.com. Today's show is going to be all around investments, and there were some really great questions talking about getting a late start, and should we be putting everything into tax advantage accounts or liquid uh, investments, 529s, HSAs. So without further ado, let's jump right into the show. And now it's time for the Curbside Consult. Hi, this is Dan. I'm an emergency medicine physician in Baltimore, Maryland. And my wife and I are planning on saving for a house, but we don't quite know how much we have to save or how we should go about that process. Do you have any tips on uh, how to save money and how much we should be saving for a a down payment on a house? Hey, Dan, thanks so much for calling in. I appreciate it and looking forward to answering this question. So I get this question a lot and, and what I'm hearing are a couple things. One is you're asking how much do you save for a down payment? And kind of where do you save that money while you're accumulating enough for a down payment? So a couple things on this. So first, you need to know exactly how much you're spending. And I hate the B word of budget, but you need to know kind of your cash flow and how things are being spent, how much are fixed expenses, how much are variable expenses. And also I look at it as paying yourself first. How much is your savings? And that could be towards investments or other goals like a down payment for a house. So typical guidelines, if you will, and everyone is different. So we're speaking in generalities here, but your fixed expenses should represent no more than 50% of your take home pay. So that's the money that hits your bank account from your salary or paychecks. This does not include what you're putting into your 401k or anything like that. That's already pulled out beforehand. We're talking about just the money that hits your bank account every month or twice a month, however you get paid. So for ease of use, we'll just say it's $10,000 is coming in. You're in attending and it's $10,000 coming in a month. No more than $5,000 of that should be allocated towards fixed expenses. That's, you know, cable bills, that's uh, water, sewer, trash. You know, we're looking at probably student loan payments, insurances, all of that stuff is included. No more than 5,000. So if that's what your target is, we need to look at 
maybe what you're spending in rent right now. So if you're spending, let's say $2,500 in rent and with no changes in lifestyle, you essentially could afford a $2,500 mortgage, assuming that you're saving and doing all the other stuff correctly, you know, IRAs and, and all the other, you know, HSAs and whatever else you're saving for, that's all getting done. I'm assuming that you're doing the right things there. So just talking about down payments and, and what you can afford and, and how to save it. So there's a couple different options. I did a show with Doug Krause. I encourage you to go listen to it, talking all about physician mortgages and traditional arms, all that kind of stuff, all the different mortgage products available. The one, the two that I would really look at is either traditional financing, which is optimal. That's 20% down. So if you were going to buy a half million dollar home, you'd be putting $100,000 down and taking out a note for $400,000. And I would be looking at a 30-year fixed and you know, right now rates are near historic lows. So that, that's going to be pretty low interest, you know, probably in the 4% range, or you can take out a physician loan or a doctor mortgage or physician mortgage. They're called a bunch of different things, but essentially it's a loan that'll uh, allow you to put 0% down or 5% down. I would always try to put something down. Let's say it was 5%. So if you're putting 5% down on the home, then you're looking at, you know, at a $500,000 home price, you're looking at $25,000 down. And how do you save that? Well, you can look at a high yield savings account. And let's say, you know, I personally, uh, my wife and I, we use Ally Bank. I think it's at like 1.4, 1.45%. Nothing to write home about. Still, it's better than Wells Fargo at their 0.001% or whatever low rate that they have currently going on. But you should be taking a monthly amount, and let's say you were looking at buying a house, I'm just trying to use easy math here, in two years, and you needed $25,000 down, that's roughly about $1,000 a month, and I would have that come directly from your checking account, automatically transferred into a separate savings account, let's say you opened one at Ally, that specifically is earmarked for a down payment on a home. I want you to put some emotion behind that money that you're saving. So you're not going to be tempted to actually go and spend it on something. As that balance starts to grow, temptation might also grow. So keep it separate away from everything, separate from your emergency savings, separate from your potential vacation fund or whatever else is important, the other important goals that you're saving for. Keep it separated out and have that just be for your house, say, you know, house down payment or whatever nickname you could give it that would give it some importance to you. And that's where I would save it. And I would generally, I would say, try to put down 20%. If you can't afford that, then try to put down the most that you can um, without getting in trouble. The banks are going to tell you, hey, you can take a $600,000 loan. You're a physician. They'll loan you more than what you should take out. They're always going to be willing to to loan you more because you're a doctor. You're quote unquote good for it. And it's easy to underwrite with a physician mortgage. You don't, they don't even look at your student loan debt and those payments inside of, can you make the house payment? Most of the time, they're not looking out in your best interest. They're looking to make a loan and you need to do the due diligence and the numbers behind what you're actually going to take out, what you're signing up for. And you need to make sure that it's going to be within your current lifestyle. That's not going to change. You're not going to overextend yourself and that you are really doing the best to protect yourself and your family with, with not overspending. I know it's tough. A lot of these houses, you move up the price range and 
you get several more amenities or a lot more square footage. But especially if you're looking at your first house, don't go for the biggest and best in the neighborhood. Try to find the best neighborhood, the cheapest house in the best neighborhood. And uh, yeah, so good luck. My name's Victor. I'm a pediatrician from San Diego, California. I've been wanting to look into how to invest for my child's education. We've talked to some people who've mentioned 529 plans are the best way to invest. And I was just wondering, what are your thoughts about 529 plans within California or other states and what your recommendations were? Victor, thank you so much for your question. So I love that you're thinking about your kids' colleges and trying to save for them. One quick caveat, because I don't know your situation, and this is for everyone, is make sure that you are putting away enough for yourself in retirement and do not prioritize your kids' college over your own retirement. You, in theory, can put debt on their tuition, right? Medical school debt, undergrad, graduate school, whatever it might be. You really can't finance your retirement with debt. You need to have investments, have saved properly, and do the right thing. So with that said, make sure you do it on your own first. Looking at 529 plans, California doesn't have a bad plan. It's actually a pretty decent plan. Unfortunately, California is one of the seven states that does not give a deduction for contributions, but they have a state income tax. The other ones, in case anyone out there is listening and wants to be aware, is California, Delaware, Hawaii, Kentucky, Maine, New Jersey, and North Carolina. So those are the seven states that have an income tax, but you do not get a deduction for contributing into the 529 plan. On a previous episode with Abby Chow of College Backer, we talked about Coverdell's UGMAs, which are Uniform Gift to Minor Act, 529s, and the pros and cons of each one. I encourage you to go listen to that episode. We had a lot of great information throughout that. And then we ultimately gave out some information on what we thought the best 529s were. So at the time, I was using uh, Fidelity's New Hampshire plan because I thought that was a great plan, and it still is. Low, low cost fees, it's not actively managed, and the expense ratios were very realistic. I mean, when you're talking about 0.2, 0.25%, uh, those are pretty low because they add in, each state adds in a fee on, that's included inside that. So when you're looking at 0.2, 0.25, it's actually not that bad. Um, I have since switched to College Backer because I love the mission. I love what they're doing. And basically, I can have my family and friends contribute to my kids' colleges instead of buying toys and other kind of junk that they might not necessarily need or that they're going to break in 14 seconds because my son is a boy and he likes to see things break and blow up. So I signed on with them. I've absolutely enjoyed it. I highly recommend everyone listening to look at College Backer, which if you sign up, College Backer has decided to give all the listeners a $25 credit once you put $25 in. So go to collegebacker.com slash financial residency and sign up for an account there. If you are inclined to stay with the California plan, which is totally fine, they actually have a pretty decent plan. I would not be looking at their active stuff. I'd be more looking at their passive or indexed type investments for lots of different reasons. But one of the things, it's significantly cheaper to go with those 
Um, and they, they actually have some flexibility. You don't have to be from California to invest in the California plan. Their fees are actually quite reasonable. They don't have, uh, I think you can start an account with as low as $25 or $15. Um, so they don't have any big barriers to entry to get in there. Um, it's just a bummer that uh, living in California, you don't get any tax break for the contributions. But otherwise, California's got a pretty decent plan. If you don't want to use California's, you can obviously use something like New Hampshire's plan through Fidelity, or uh, like we we do now is we went through Utah's plan uh, through College Backer. So I encourage you to look at all the different options out there and just make sure that you're really analyzing when you look at which plan you're going to choose. You're looking at the plan that has the lowest fees that has highly diversified investments. Hi, Ryan. This is Schaefer. I'm an endocrinologist in California. As a physician, I've gotten a late start on retirement savings. How do I decide how much of my income I should put into pre-tax retirement accounts and how much I should place in more liquid investments? Schaefer, thank you so much for the question. So it is typical that with physicians going through training, med school, residency, some even through fellowship, and if you're a surgeon, even, you know, it gets extended out even longer that you're going to have a late start to investing and you're going to feel behind, you know, and I put that in quotes compared to your peers that you maybe went to college with that have been out working in the workforce since they were 22. Whereas you're really entering the workforce probably at 30 or 31. It's understandable and it's okay. If you were able to put money away while you were in residency, let's say, or fellowship and put money into Roth IRAs, that's a great thing. If you're starting out your career right now and you have consumer debt or credit card debt, that is probably the most important thing that you can do right now is to pay that down. Again, I'm going to talk in generalities here, but consumer debt is the worst kind of debt you can have. And you're not really going to make 22 or 20% out there investing in other things. I would say take the sure bet of paying down that debt and saving that interest. Now, if we're not talking about consumer debt and we're talking about 401ks, 403bs, 457s, HSAs, IRAs, all the other tax advantaged accounts, if you're going for public service loan forgiveness, you absolutely need to be maxing out all of these tax advantaged accounts. The more money you put into there, the lower your income, potentially lower the student loan payment and therefore increasing your student loan balance, which would ultimately mean after 120 qualified payments that it would more would be forgiven. If you're not going for public service loan forgiveness and you're looking at refinancing with a private company, SoFi, DB, Common Bond, whatever they're, whatever's out there, whatever's offering the best rates, that does change a little bit of the investment philosophy. But still, I am a firm believer in the more money that you put away for retirement, the better off you will be in the long term. Now, that doesn't mean that I would push everything into tax advantaged accounts and have nothing to live off of. Let's say you're a resident. Obviously, you need money to live. I wouldn't be racking up credit card debt to go put money into a Roth account. You know, again, we're talking about low balance. This is right. $5,500 is the contribution every year. But to a resident, I remember when my wife and I were residents, $5,500 is a lot of money. And it was hard to put away $458 every single month for each of us. 
And there were some years that we couldn't max it out. Um, even though we tried, we just, we couldn't do it, especially living in Orange County and San Diego in a high cost of living area. So you're going to do the best you can, but as you finish and you now make your 200, $300,000, $400,000 salary, you are going to need to prioritize certain investments. And I believe that you need to be looking at all the tax advantaged accounts first. Then what's left over, look at your debts that you still have. And if you're not going for public service loan forgiveness, then I would be trying, I would absolutely not try. I would absolutely make a debt repayment plan. And I would try to be putting down, even if the rates are pretty low, I'd still be trying to put more additional payments towards your student debt after you've already maxed out all your tax advantage accounts, rather than saving in a tax taxable account. If you're going for public service loan forgiveness, then the taxable account becomes extremely important because you're not going to make extra payments on your student debt. And you're almost creating a hedge if PSLF never happened. For some reason, Trump's plan blows it up and we never get to see anyone get anything forgiven, which I put maybe a 10% probability of that happening. I think we're we're far into the, the probability that everything will go according to plan and they won't be changing anything or everyone in the current plan is already going to be grandfathered in and new borrowers, the people, the physicians or soon to be physicians that are in med school might not have that program available, but everyone that's already in the program and accepted, meaning you filed your certification and they, and fed loans has said, Hey, we recognize this and that we agree that you, these were qualified payments. I don't think you have to worry about it, but this could be something that if you are going for public service loan forgiveness, that you, you open a taxable account and you put money aside that you would be putting towards a normal payment or additional payments, you invest in that type of account as kind of a hedge just in case something happened. Hope that helps. And now for our next question. Hi, Ryan. This is Hillary. My husband is a third-year med student and I work full-time. I have access to an HSA account, and one of your recent podcasts has encouraged me to try and raise my contributions to it this upcoming year. You have the opportunity to invest that money once it reaches a certain dollar amount. So my question is, how aggressive should my HSA portfolio be? Thanks. Hey, Hillary. Thank you so much for the question. I really appreciate it. You're asking about HSAs and the best way to invest. How aggressive or conservative should you be? And I just want to back up real quick for the listeners and just make sure that everyone knows what an HSA is before we start diving a little bit more in the details. So an HSA is known as a health savings account. And basically, if you're in a high deductible health plan through work, then you are eligible for an HSA. And essentially, If your employer can help sponsor that HSA, you can do it through them. They can actually have payroll deductions taken right out of your check before it hits your bank account, and they can go put it into whatever provider that they've contracted through in order to do it. This is very different than the FSA or the flexible spending account. Flexible spending account has the the use it or lose it policy every year going forward. The HSAs do not. The HSAs really act like a stealth IRA, uh, very similar to like a traditional and a Roth IRA. And it's the only triple tax deferred account that I know of. What that means is you get a deduction for putting a contribution in to your HSA in the given year. 
it's allowed to grow tax-free, just like your traditional or your Roth IRAs. And then as long as it's pulled out to pay for qualified medical expenses, it comes out tax-free. And you're thinking, wow, that sounds amazing. What are the downsides? Well, there's a couple downsides. One, if you take out the money and it's not for qualified medical expenses, you have penalties and you're going to pay taxes plus the penalty. After age 65, you don't have the, the penalty, which by the way is 20%. And so after 65, you'll just pay taxes on it like it's a traditional IRA and you're just pulling out distributions. But if it's before 65, you have a big penalty. You are in a high deductible health plan. So generally that's like about $3,000. So you're going to have to cover those copays up to that amount in order to basically qualify for even having an HSA. So for our family, it's not worth it for us to have an HSA just because we have so many other medical expenses that are necessities. But some families don't have that and this could actually work for them. The last thing uh, I'd say is a quick negative on it is you tend to have to pay the fees. So your employer usually covers the cost of this stuff. But if you have an HSA that's not through your employer, you probably have to cover some fees. And we're not talking, you know, hundreds of dollars, but, uh, you know, maybe it's two, four, five dollars a month. So anyone can start one. The current contributions have been raised for 2018. Uh, It's $3,450 for an individual or $6,900 per person. Now to kind of jump into your question now, so everyone understands what an HSA actually is. Really, it's again, a useful, valuable tool, I think, for retirement. Fidelity spent, you know, did a study in 2015 or 16. I'll have to find it and link it in the show notes uh, that said that the average couple is going to spend about $250,000 on healthcare costs during retirement. You know, if you're married to a medical student, you know, you're probably in your late twenties and you know, you've, you've got at least 30 plus years of retirement. That number is going to be significantly higher. So with all that said and done, and we're talking about how you should actually invest into it and how aggressive you should be. I want you to literally think about how do you invest all your other money? How do you invest your IRAs, your traditional IRA, or if you're doing Roth IRAs, you probably are as a medical student or medical spouse. Um, that you're contributing directly into the Roth. But let's say you're a new attending and you're doing traditional and then converting it to Roths. How are you investing that money? What asset mix are you doing it? Is it 80% stock and 20% bond and it's an aggressive portfolio? Is it a more moderate portfolio? Let's say it's 60% stock and 40% bonds. Is it a really conservative portfolio at 40% stock and 60% bonds? However you're investing currently in across all of your other accounts is exactly the same way I would invest the HSA money. I don't view it any differently than any of the other accounts that you're doing. If you can, I would be trying to cash flow your current medical expenses out of income and not pulling from the HSA. Allow this money to sit in there and compound over time and grow tax very tax efficient, right? Triple tax deferred. Allow it to grow tax-free for 30 years. Then you could start pulling the money out to pay for some of the healthcare costs. You're probably going to have significantly higher healthcare costs in retirement when you're older than you are in your late 20s anyway. So those are the couple of things I would look at. One little caveat I would make is that HSAs require anywhere from two dollars to $3,000 to sit in cash that can't be invested regardless of what you want to do with the the money. 
I would view that cash as basically my bond equivalent. So if I was to invest, let's say at 80% stock, 20% bond, and I had to keep $2,000 cash, I wouldn't use the remaining 80,000 to go 80-20. I would be looking at it as that should be my equity piece and the 20, the 2,000 would represent 20% of my HSA that's sitting in cash. As that account balance grows, obviously then you would start putting money towards the bonds. But that's the only caveat is because HSAs force you to hold $2,000 or if you try to invest it, they'll probably either not allow it or they'll liquidate it back to that, that minimum level. And so I would invest basically exactly the way that you have your current investments across the board. Hey there, my name's Savannah and I'm in Georgia. My husband is an internal medicine resident. My question has to do with dual income families. So I work as a PA and the only debt that we have currently is our home. So I have a great salary. My husband's salary isn't that great right now, but it is something better than med school. And so my question is, how do we invest? Because we're maxing out his 403B through work, doing backdoor Roths for both of us. I'm contributing at work to my simple IRA with a match that's given, but we're still finding that we have extra money left over and it's just sitting in the bank where I know it's not gaining any interest. So I'm not really sure where to go from here. Um, And if you could provide any guidance, that would be great. Thank you so much. Hey, Savannah, thank you so much for the question. And I'm really actually excited that this is the type of question I'm getting versus the other side of the spectrum on this. Having no additional debt other than your home as a resident or married to a resident is amazing. Usually it's the exact opposite. You've got six-figure student debt. You are trying to buy a home that is too big and you can't really afford it. You potentially have credit card debt and you're not maxing out any of your accounts. The idea that you're the exact opposite, that you're maxing out his 403B, your work-sponsored plans, you're doing the right things with funding your IRAs and converting it over to Roths. All of this stuff is amazing. Keep up the great work. So you have too much money in the bank. What do you do? There's a couple options. One is how I mentioned in a previous question on the show is if you are in a a high deductible uh, health plan to start and fund fully fund an HSA, the contribution limits again are $3,450 for single or $6,900 for the family. If you don't have a high deductible plan, obviously you can't start an HSA. The other thing that you could check is if your husband has a 403B, he might have access to a 457B. And essentially, this is another tax-advantaged retirement plan that is available to government or tax-exempt organizations. And it works very similar to the 401k or the 403b. And if you are offered both of these, you can contribute the maximum to both of the plans. So he could still max his 403b at $18,500 and max a 457b with another $18,500. Same limits, and the limits did increase in 2018 to 18,500 from the previous year of 2017 of being just 18,000. If there are no additional tax deferred accounts that you can contribute to, then you have two options. 
The first option is to pay down debt on your home. And if you've got a 30-year fixed and it's sub 4.5% interest rate, then I wouldn't be super excited to pay this down. And I would be more looking at the second option, which would be is opening up a taxable account at your custodian of choice. And custodians are ones like Vanguard, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade. I know there's a ton of robo-advisors out there you can go to, but I would be more a fan of doing it yourself and going to one of these big custodians where you can buy very tax-efficient investments like passively managed index funds that are highly diversified and extremely low cost, low expense ratioed funds, or doing some sort of mix of the two, whether you're investing in a taxable account and you're making additional payments on your home. So there's something said about being completely debt-free, including your home. And that's very rare that a resident would even be thinking of this. So what you're doing is amazing. Keep up the great work. And I hope that helps. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for being here. I love doing these curbside consults. Love hearing your guys' questions and being able to answer those and help you guys out directly. That's what I'm here for. It's the best part of the podcast, honestly. So please keep calling in with questions. If you have one, go to financialresidency.com slash podcast. Click got a question, send it in. Record the question and hopefully you can be on the show too. Thank you so much, guys, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Financial Residency Podcast. This episode has ended, but your financial residency continues online. Head over to financialresidency.com, where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.